Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast with Dr. Brett Scher. Today I'm joined by Dr. David Diamond. Now, Dr. Diamond has a PhD in biology, and he's a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of South Florida. Now, interestingly, his work is in cognitive and neuroscience, and he's done this for decades. But because of a personal journey, he has now gone down this whole path of cholesterol and statins and low-carb lifestyle and really trying to say, what does the science say? What does the science support in this realm? Now, this is a polarizing topic, especially with mainstream medicine, mainstream cardiology being very much in the camp of LDL is causative of heart disease. And Dr. Diamond is on the other side of that saying, wait a second, I don't think the evidence supports that statement. Now, I've got to be honest, this is a very important topic for me, a personal topic for me. I had a huge list of notes and I kind of went a little bit all over the place because I was just so interested in talking to him and talking about the different topics and getting his thoughts on different things. So I apologize if this interview doesn't flow as seamlessly as I would have liked. Um, but I think we cover a lot of different topics. Now, quick disclaimer though, if you have high cholesterol, if you are on a statin, please do not make any medical decisions or changes based on this discussion. This is merely to explore some evidence, to explore one side of this equation, hopefully in a balanced way. But if you're going to make any changes or any decisions about your medications or your health, please talk to your doctor first. Do not make any decisions based on this discussion alone. Now, with that disclaimer, we talk a lot about the science. We talk a lot about the practicality of how this implies to individuals in a low-carb lifestyle. And we explore a number of different topics about cholesterol, LDL, statins, and their benefits. So um, a couple quick definitions, uh, which I think we go over, but relative risk reduction versus absolute risk reduction. So if you have a 1% risk of something and you can reduce it down to a half of a percent, the difference, the absolute difference is a half a percent. That's the absolute risk reduction. Relative risk reduction, however, would say that's a 50% reduction because a half a percent is half of 1%. So we talk a lot about that. Dr. Diamond's been very vocal about sort of truth and advertising between those two things. Um, we talk about Mendelian studies, and basically that's just uh, a natural history experiment of genetic mutation and following what happens to people over time with that genetic mutation. That's called a Mendelian randomization trial. I think I use that term a little bit in here. Um, I think hopefully that's all the definitions you need, and I hope you enjoy this discussion with uh, Professor David Diamond. You can see the full transcripts on dietdoctor.com. Again, please realize this is not medical advice. This is just simply exploring a fascinating topic with a fascinating human being. So enjoy this discussion with Dr. David Diamond. Dr. David Diamond, thanks so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Brett. It's a pleasure to have you here because you really have been a spearhead in this movement of questioning the role of LDL, questioning the role of statins, and more importantly, how does that apply to a low-carb lifestyle? But this this is not even your job. This is not your profession. I mean, you have a regular job as a professor in the Department of Psychology. So tell us a little bit about how you got from point A to point B here. Right. So my training, my primary expertise is in neuroscience, studying the brain and memory, which I started over 40 years ago. Um, but what happened about 20 years ago was that uh, I found that I had extremely high triglycerides. I was actually um, diagnosed with familial hypertriglyceridemia, which happens to about 5% of the people in the population. Uh, I eat some bread and my triglycerides go sky high. Yeah. Uh, my triglycerides were about seven, 800. And with these people who have high triglycerides, also have low HDL. So my ratio of triglycerides to HDL, which should ideally be like one to one or two to mm -hmm. one, mine was about over 20 to one. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. And so, uh, and it was for about 10 years. Um, my doctor's keeping track every year. I'm getting blood tests. I'm working out like crazy. I'm on a low-fat diet. And every year I just got fatter and fatter. And my triglycerides are up. Uh, finally, my doctor sat me down and said, you know, you've done your best. Uh, diet and exercise have failed. Just like I say in the commercial, you've got to go on a statin as mm -hmm. well as other medication. Um, and I just figured, well, you know, I've got a background in biology. I, I know a lot about the brain, but not, about, not much about heart disease. The least I can do is read a few papers before I go on the medication. Uh, read a few papers, and by this time I've now read a few thousand papers. <laughs> and that has helped to guide me in my decision not to use medication. Uh, and instead, uh, I learned about the value of a low-carb diet 
I was able to cut my triglycerides by 75%, raise my HDL 25%, uh, lose a, a good bit of weight, um, feel much healthier now than I did 20 years ago. Uh, so uh, I'm a strong advocate for a low-carb diet, but also realizing that medication wasn't appropriate. And in the process, um, I, I, I've been, uh, in a sense, indignant about the statin research. Uh, I actually express this when I give my talks about how I realized that the, the cholesterol theory, which is cholesterol causes heart disease through LDL, uh, is really not well supported. Mm -hmm. um, and, and frankly, what I express is um, it's the obscene profits um, that have been made through the food and drug industry that have maintained a, a hypothesis that has failed. Mm. Very, very uh, controversial and interesting um, theory, which you back up with a lot of research. So I want to talk about that. But I think right. your example is a perfect example of what's happening in this low-carb world and the medical world in general, that whether it's an engineer or whether it's a scientist, frequently an outsider from the medical profession has a personal experience, but then they have the tools and the knowledge to dig deeper and provide us with a whole new perspective. And I think that's so valuable because... Um, you know, in the medical world, if you're in your own echo chamber, only hearing the same people, the same experts, the same drug right. companies, although we fall into that same risk, I guess, in a low carb world, right? We all, you know, we can be our own echo chamber too. Right. So we have to reach out um, in, into other areas and keep our ears open for other, other um, opinions. Now, one of the things that you're you're very critical of is is evidence and how we portray evidence and. We talk about evidence-based medicine all the time, and we talk about what's the evidence for keto against keto. What is your perspective as you've looked into things about the state of evidence in the medical world? Well, I think it's very important that I don't come in with a bias. Uh, you know, I've actually been very well funded by drug companies in my neuroscience research, and I'm not personally or professionally opposed to any drug company research. Uh, I had never seen the distortion of data uh, distortion of the presentation of data uh, before going into the cardiovascular field, before reading papers on effectiveness of treatments with the cardiovascular, particularly lowering of cholesterol drugs. Uh, and I have to tell you that I, I was astounded, I was offended mm. when I saw how the data were manipulated to greatly uh, overstate uh, the benefit of cholesterol-lowering drugs, which actually goes back decades, uh, originally talking about cholestyramine in a 1984 paper in which you had, uh, starting off with um, about half a million men, they got that uh, work down to about 6,000 people of the highest levels of cholesterol and using a, an older drug, cholestyramine, which lowered cholesterol. Right. The amazing thing is after seven and a half years, there was virtually no effect. And there was no real statistically significant effect. It was a 0.4% difference between treated and untreated men. And I look at that, and what they should have said was, you know something, we were wrong. Lowering cholesterol really didn't have any benefit whatsoever. But they turned that 0.4% into a 24% improvement in outcome. And so this manipulation of the data, and that's using relative risk rather than importing the actual outcomes. Right. So to me, this is just not right in how you report the data to the public and to the medical field. Yeah, you've been very vocal about the relative risk versus absolute risk. So the absolute risk in that setting would have been the 0.4%. But when you do it in a percentage, it's a relative risk. So if you have a 1% risk, you lower your risk to half a percent, that's a 50% reduction. Now, what's interestingly, as a cardiologist, I've been inundated with that type of relative risk reduction uh, publicity. And to me, it was just how it was done until I started you know, digging a little bit deeper and realizing it's a completely different conversation if you have the absolute risk reduction. But the fallback is there is a change. There is a difference. So even in the statins, and I guess maybe we're jumping a little ahead here, but yeah. even in the statin trials, if there's a 1% difference, it can be a statistically significant 1% difference, which then they publicize as a 36% difference. Right. But it's hard to argue that there is a difference. So the question becomes, when is it a big enough difference to make uh, a clinically useful intervention? And that's a hard question to answer, isn't right. it? Well, the first thing is, in a sense, we need truth in advertising. We need accurate reporting. Yeah. So what's very important is to report both the absolute risk and the relative risk. They should both be in uh, the abstracts. They should both be presented to doctors and to patients. People yeah. should know both. What is actually the difference in the rate of events in people at placebo versus the treated people? 
you shouldn't only be told the relative risk because that's deceptive. And we know right. studies both in doctors and the public. When you hear about a 50% reduction in risk and that's all you hear, you think that half of all people are now not going to have a heart attack. Right. And that's exactly what doctors interpret that. Right. So again, first, uh, I'm not against actually just reporting a 50% reduced uh, risk uh, with statins. But that's got to come along with the absolute risk as well. People mm -hmm. need to have both data forms. Uh, and the second thing is, you are right. There are numerous studies showing benefit with statins. And that benefit typically is on the order of single digits. There's never been a statin study I know of in which you actually have a double-digit improvement. And I have to just briefly tell you, in my field of neuroscience, where we actually study depression, there's great controversy because people with mild to moderate depression, given a placebo, have actually a rather dramatic effect. There's right. a benefit. <laughs> and people, like, the controversy is that the antidepressants only improve outcome by 10% compared to placebo. Well, there's never been a real 10% improvement in outcome of any kind with statins. So what I, I agree with you completely. There, is, there are studies that have shown some benefit of statins, whether you're looking at coronary events as well as coronary uh, mortality and all-cause mortality, uh, and those numbers are relatively small, but they are real. It's yeah, I think that's a great perspective that you bring from the field of psychology and, and depression that they're looking for a 10% benefit. And we're talking about half of a percent to 1% benefit. Right. And it, it's interesting that the, the phrasing, the, the wording of, of these studies, that they're blockbuster, that they're right. revolutionary. And I think we sort of lost perspective of what blockbuster and revolutionary really are. Like treating tuberculosis, that was revolutionary. That was blockbuster. Sanitation, anesthesia, you know, those are blockbuster. A half of a percent difference is that a blockbuster. But then people say, well, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer in the world. You know, millions of people are going to suffer from cardiovascular disease. So if we can make a 1% difference, that's a lot of people. And in a way, that's a valid argument when you're talking about a population basis, right? I agree completely. Um, if statins had no adverse effects yeah. and you save 1% of the people from having a heart attack, well, I'd be all for it. Right. Um, I mean, you know, I'd take it myself <laughs> if we were absolutely certain there were no adverse effects. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a crapshoot. Think a 1% effect means that 100 people are going to take the drug and only one person out of 100. 99 take the drug and then there's no benefit whatsoever. But again, it gets down to adverse effects. Now, what has happened is people are really not aware of the adverse effects. Uh, they've been greatly minimized by the, the key opinion leaders, uh, and I've also talked about this. Now, we actually uh, were invited to write a, a commentary uh, recently by PLOS One, uh, and in that commentary, which just came out a few months ago, we reviewed the literature on adverse statin effects, and it, it's not small, it's extensive. Mm -hmm. We reviewed about 60 papers published in peer-reviewed medical journals on about 20 different categories of adverse effects. The most obvious is development of type 2 diabetes, and this has really been minimized by the key opinion leaders. But when you actually look carefully and you have a, an RCT, an actual trial, in which you get blood, uh, blood samples and you look at the A1C levels and you look at fasting glucose as well as uh, other insulin measures, you actually find that over the course of six years, this is in men, that there's a 5% increase in novel, in new onset type 2 diabetes. So in this particular one was done in Finland, funded by the government, what you have a spontaneous increase in, in type 2 diabetes with placebos, 5%. But in those that were on statins, it was actually 11%. Uh, so it's a doubling in the rate of type 2 diabetes, which is a relative risk measure. Right. But we're not talking about 1%. We're talking about a 6% increase over the course of about six years. And so that's just one adverse effect. There are really well-described cognitive effects. We've published a paper on cognitive effects of statins. And there's actually a beautiful paper that has shown that people diagnosed with dementia, older people diagnosed with dementia, which when they were taken off the statin, the dementia disappeared. Hmm. Put them back on the statin, the dementia returned. This is not something I think doctors are aware of, the extent of the adverse effects of the statins. Yeah, it's very interesting because when you, when you talk about adverse effects of statins, the most common is the muscle aches. That's what everybody talks about. And, and the argument is you can't compare muscle aches to heart attacks, right? Those aren't on the same level, especially when the vast majority of the muscle aches disappear when you take when you remove the statin. But even with the muscle aches, there's significant controversy. I mean, you look at the trials and they report one in 10,000 right. know, risk of significant muscle aches. And of course, these are 
designed by the pharmaceutical companies. There's a run-in period which weeds out a lot of the people who who would be intolerant, so they're not included right. in, the, in the trial. But then my, my favorite is how you called out Rory Collins, that you know he would state there's one in 10,000 risk of statins, but yet his commercially available product to test for statin myopathy risk quotes a 29% ri- risk. Right. So where do you see in, in, in trying to evaluate the evidence, where do you see the, the muscle aches really lie? Where do you think that is? Where's well, the real is, number? This is very interesting because uh, you listen to the leaders of the field. Um, Steve Nissen, for example, calls it a nocebo effect in which the person is told statins cause muscle aches and therefore they say they have statin-induced muscle aches. Yeah. But he calls it actually a nocebo, meaning it's all in their head. And there are some very poorly designed studies that support that. What I'm presenting today is actually Steve Nissen and Christy Ballantyne and Steve Nichols, strong statin advocates, talking about muscle pain caused by statins. Yeah. They're not calling it a nocebo effect. And their estimate is 40% of the people taking statins stop taking it in part because of muscle pain. So it kind of I caught them on a video in which they're being candid about what actually happens in the clinic, why people stop taking statins. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. And it, and it is difficult to, to decipher the real-life effect, the physiological effect, versus the placebo or nocebo effect. That's why you need a randomized controlled, placebo-controlled trial, but those trials frequently excluded people who are at risk of having muscle aches. So right. I don't think we know the true answer. But the bottom line is if you think it's causing you muscle aches and you're not going to exercise because of it, we have to ask, is it impacting your health favorably? And it makes right. you wonder, doesn't it? Well, that's another important point. What happens is we know that statins interfere with metabolism. You have less CoQ10, which muscles need to be able to have energy. Yeah. And there's some very nice work from um, 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 out of uh, UC San Diego. I'm blocking on her first name in the moment, but Galom, and it'll, she'll come, it'll come to me later. But very nice work showing that um, people have fatigue much more rapidly, especially under exertion conditions. Yeah. Uh, and so we do have less energy. People have less energy when they've taken statins. And we do have muscles breaking down, which contributes then to kidney disease, kidney injury, as well established, actually, published papers. Uh, so I think we're looking at very real physiological effects that have adverse effects globally on the body. Yeah, so, so we started with the muscle aches, and then um, diabetes is, is right. the next big one. And what's interesting about the diabetes is people say, well, look, if you're having an increased risk of diabetes, but you're still showing a reduction in cardiovascular events, doesn't matter. And that's very interesting within a five-year trial. But when people are on these drugs for 20 or 30 years, we're left to determine how are we going to interpret that data. On the one hand, people say, well, if the cardiovascular benefit is one year at five years, it's going to be two years at 10 years and four year, 4% at 20 years. Okay, maybe we can make that reach. But how is the diabetes going to impact that? And we don't right. know the answer to that question, do we? Right. Uh, no, we don't, because most of the trials are stopped at about three or four years. Uh, it's Beatrice Gallon, by the way, at UC San Diego. She came back to me, <laughs> and she's done some wonderful work uh, looking at statin effects. Uh, what you'll find with the statin advocates, and I, I look at this, this really is it, it's outside my primary area in which I was just a basic scientist, and I'm still a basic scientist looking at brain function, but to see people now who I consider advocates for statins, that's not the way science is done. And what's happened with the statin advocates is they consistently take that number needed to treat, which may be small after one year, and then they simply uh, change it. It's one out of 100 people yeah, will actually have a benefit from statins. And then they'll say, well, after 20 years, you only have to treat five or 10 people yeah. because that benefit will accrue over the 20 years. Right. And they refuse to say, well, the adverse effects can also accrue. So if we're looking at 6% uh, additional people develop diabetes after about five, six years, well, what's going to happen after 20 years? And then what happens if there's actually an exponential increase in adverse effects? Once tissue starts breaking down, then you've got to be even more concerned that that happening at a more rapid pace, especially with elderly people. Right. And, and by the way, also, the way I also present this is if the tobacco companies had the control that the drug companies have now overlooking only with the onset of starting to take the statins after only about four years, if you look at 
development of cancer, lung cancer, only four years after you started four smoking. Years after you we never would have known about the link of lung cancer to smoking. So understand, these trials were stopped really before most cancers can develop. But when you look long term, and there's actually a nice epidemiological study looking over 10 years, you see twice the rate of breast cancer in women who are on statins chronically mm. compared to equivalent groups of women either with high cholesterol, low cholesterol. And so there's also evidence of cancer in men as well. But you've got to look either at older population, more vulnerable, or a longer period of time. Yeah, that's interesting because that's where there's some some contradictory evidence because there's meta-analysis showing no increased risk of cancer as well. And it all has to do with which trials do you include, how long's the follow-up, and it, it, it becomes confusing and it's difficult to say with certainty. But then you hear these statements, the the preponderance of evidence, right? Taking the evidence as a whole shows that that statins reduce cardiovascular events. Now, that's also difficult because where does the preponderance of evidence come from? It's mostly pharma-sponsored trials. Um, so how do we interpret pharma-sponsored trials? I mean, the data is still the data, right? You can't, right. Not, it's not like they're falsifying the data, but what, what is the impact of, of the pharmaceutical companies have on the data we're seeing? I actually give pharmaceutical companies a lot of credit. I, I, I don't see any evidence of fraud. Uh, the deception is how actually the, the clinic directors present the data to the public and to the medical community. And again, that gets back to the relative risk versus absolute risk. The fact that they report such minuscule benefit, beneficial effects, to me, I, I give them credit. <laughs> that clearly, to me, there doesn't appear to be any reason to accuse them of fraud. Um, because they're showing so little benefit. And, and again, I don't think we want to automatically demonize studies that are funded by pharma. Uh, these are very expensive studies, and it's very difficult to get government funding for long-term studies on cardiovascular disease. The other real challenge is it's a very low rate in which people actually develop heart attacks. Even, um, about the only time you see a high rate of death is with heart failure of which statins are absolutely no benefit at all, and people with high cholesterol live much longer than people with low cholesterol following heart failure. Um, but when you're looking at heart attacks, you actually see in the general population such a low rate that, frankly, to give the pharma credit, it's difficult to see much of a reduction in heart attacks. Yeah. I mean, you even take people at high risk of heart attacks, um, and you'll only get about typically 3 4 5% that will actually have heart attacks and you have a low rate of mortality. Right. So this is part of a, a methodological challenge um, for this area of research. So not like in a, in a cancer study, you may very well have 50% of the people die in a short period of time. But in these heart disease studies, I don't think people appreciate that there really is a relatively low rate of events in placebo-treated people. Right. And this is why I tell people, I, I show them a study such as the, the Lipitor study, which was very famous in Lancet. Um, early to about 2000, uh, or so the heart protection study, the British heart protection study, uh, you're only looking at about three or four percent of the people have died. They're terribly uncooperative, is the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, right. and about 97 percent of the people don't have heart disease. And the way I also present this to people, I say, listen, you can go to your doctor and say, if I don't take the statin, if you give me a placebo. What's the likelihood in the next five years I'll have a heart attack? Right. And the answer is 97% likely that you will not have a heart attack. And so to me, that's the reality of it as well. Yeah. So that, that goes down to the, from a doctor's standpoint, the shotgun approach of let's give this drug to as many people as possible, hope, hoping one is going to benefit, versus the more, um, the more laser beam focus of let's really find out who's at the highest risk and then maybe add statin as part of their regimen. So yeah. how do you interpret the um, the calcium scoring data that's yeah. come out recently? You know, the one big study out of Walter Reed um, that showed absolutely no statin benefit if your calcium score was zero. It showed a very small benefit if your calcium score was being between one and 100. I think it was the number needed to treat was about 100 over 10 years. Right. Uh, but then as that score goes above 100, all of a sudden the number needed to treat to save one cardiovascular event, not death, but cardiovascular event, goes right. down to 12. So how do you think about that more laser-focused approach than uh, trying to better identify who might benefit from a statin as one part of their tre overall treatment program? Right. So I think there is evidence, actually going back to the 4S study even 25 years ago, now including the calcium scores with people, show that the people that are more vulnerable to develop heart disease are actually do benefit from the statins. 
Um, and so you're absolutely right. That study showed that the people that had the high calcium score showed a benefit, reduced uh, coronary events, no difference in mortality, as you say, as well. Uh, and I think it's actually important to go back. This relates. Well, first of all, uh, when we're talking about calcium score, I want to point out everyone agrees high calcium score is unhealthy. I mean, this is, is a fact. Uh, the interesting thing is numerous studies have come out now showing that people on statins have increased in calcium score. Right. This is also, there's no dif difference of opinion on this. The remarkable thing to me is now that we say, oh, well, that must be a good thing because increasing calcium stabilizes the plaque. This to me came out of nowhere. It, it's like calcium, increased calcium score is bad uh, unless it's induced by the statin. Right. Then it becomes a good thing. So that's remarkable to me. Uh, so what, what I will yield here is that there is evidence of benefit of statins given to people with high risk. And the important thing actually is there's a, an analysis of people in the 4S study. That was done 25 years ago using simvastatin. And what you actually have, that was one of the biggest effects ever, in which you actually had a 4% reduction in mortality in, for secondary prevention. People already had a heart attack. Right. And, and frankly, you have to go back 25 years to find any study that was as good as the forest study. It shows how weak the effects have been since then. But even accepting that it was a study run by pharma, the data were analyzed by pharma, it's okay, a 4% reduction in mortality for people at high risk. A reanalysis of that study came out seven years later, published in circulation, and it showed the entire benefit was in people that basically had uh, metabolic syndrome. People who had low HDL, high triglycerides, and high LDL. The entire benefit. Now, when you look in the 4S study, which is so important, the people that had the same high LDL but high HDL and low triglycerides, secondary prevention, no benefit whatsoever. Hmm. And this is so important getting back to low carb because that's exactly what happens when people go low carb. Their HDL rises, their triglycerides drop just like it did for me. Right. So what this is saying is you have a choice. Okay? You can take a statin and have a basically crappy metabolic syndrome or you can go low carb, make all those improvements, and there's evidence the statin will have any benefit over yeah. that. I think that's a great perspective. I want to talk about that real quickly, though, going back to the um, the statins causing the increased calcium. I, I think that's a great point, how the immediate reaction from the medical community was, oh, this is a good thing. And to be honest, we don't know. It could be perfectly correct. You right. know, there's a, there's a mechanistic way to think that that is correct. Um, but to not have the evidence and just dismiss it because of a mechanism would get thrown out if it was contrary to the the common belief and that right. shows how a common belief can really direct a conversation may not be maybe right maybe wrong but it's just a perfect example of that so i think right. that was good right. right now getting back to the the ldl and the environment it's in and that's something i think we really lose perspective of because even going back to the framingham data same thing there was an association all an, a complete total association between rising ldl and rising cholesterol and risk of cardiovascular disease. But when you see the Framingham offspring data and they break it down according to HDL um, levels, all of a sudden that that association is lost at higher HDL. So it shows there's something to this more than just LDL, and it probably has to do with metabolic health. And like right. you said, a reevaluation of the 4S trial um, says that. Now, that being said, though, you know, LDL is causative of cardiovascular disease. We heard it in 1980s with Brown and Goldstein. We heard it again last year with the European Society of Cardiology. The definition of cardiovascular disease is an ApoB-containing lipoprotein um, in a macrophage in the arterial wall. Therefore, it is causative. Now, with so many people certain in the medical community that, that it is causative, what are they missing? Wow. So when you say it's causative, you're, you're just quoting. I don't know if that's your opinion Sorry, or not. yeah, I should, I should you say are quoting I'm quoting the literature. I'm quoting the literature, <laughs> right. right? I'm not stating and, my opinion. I'm quoting what I see paper sure. after paper and after paper. it's interesting. Paper. You mentioned Brown and Goldstein. They stated as a fact LDL causes heart disease yeah. in the complete absence of any evidence. I mean, they did elegant work linking LDL receptor abnormalities to familial hypercholesterolemia, but they never showed that LDL actually was causative of heart disease. Uh, this is, again, where we have to actually look at the evidence. That's all I really care about. So we have a drug 
that, ra that lowers LDL as much as statins and also raises HDL. This is CETP inhibitors. Mm -hmm. So the great thing about this drug is a completely different mechanism from statins. Um, and initially it uh, killed people. And so <laughs> those, those trials were stopped. Um, so people are dying with lower LDL and higher HDL. But after that, they were able to clean up the drug so it has almost no side effects. Uh, the CETP inhibitors, drug companies invested over a billion dollars. This was to be the blockbuster because not only did it lower LDL, it raised HDL. Uh, this is one of the biggest failures ever in pharma history. So these are people who are primary, secondary treatment with a drug, um, dramatically lower LDL, and absolutely no difference in coronary events or mortality. So no, be no benefit, no harm. This, to me, is sort of the death knell for the LDL hypothesis. This is saying, no, you're lowering LDL and you're making no difference in coronary events. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second is what we have to realize is there's a lot of money involved in blaming LDL for heart disease. What we've got is a new generation of drugs. Uh, well, let me back, back off. A lot of people say it doesn't matter whether statins lower LDL or not. As long as statins provide a benefit, we don't care about the mechanism. And that's one side of the argument, which actually we can talk about. Yeah. If statins have a benefit and they don't have an adverse effects, fine. Who cares how they work? But what has happened is we have this new generation of drugs. That's the PCSK9 inhibitors. This drug specifically targets LDL. So if we actually look objectively at the research and we drop LDL and we simply accept that LDL doesn't really cause heart disease and statins work and we, we stop right there, that would be fine. But because the drug companies have invested over a billion dollars in the PCSK9 inhibitors, we've got to continue to target LDL. Now, part of this is I always talk about familial hypercholesterolemia. These are people with extremely high LDL levels, two, three times normal. Uh, and in my papers that I've written, in what I'll be covering my talk today, I'm covering how people with FH, people with LDL, two to 300 or more, live a normal, healthy life, that they have a normal lifespan. These are people who live into their 70s and 80s with total cholesterol 400 and LDL 300. Well, that's clearly counter to the idea that LDL is killing people. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Yet there's a subset that clearly develop cardiovascular disease at a young age and die at a young age, but when taken as a whole, the overall life expectancy is not that much different. And when you compare those who get early cardiovascular disease to those who don't, it doesn't seem that LDL is the predictor, does right. it? Absolutely. No. And, and again, let's be clear on the numbers. When you look at, it's a, it's a ratio of the rate of death for each decade of life. So the first thing is only about 1% of people die in their first 20 years. In modern society, we have very low mortality rate, first 20 years. And when you look at rate of death for people with FH, that that is not statistically different from people in their first 20 years, 20 to 30, 20 to 40. There is no overall difference in death rate. It is remarkable. There is a greater increase. There are greater incidence of coronary events. Mm -hmm. But the actual death rate, this goes back whether you're looking at the 1960s to Harlan's work. Through the decades, there have been a half a dozen papers published. And Mundell et al., this is beautiful work out of uh, uh, Norway, in which you're looking at about 5,000 people, documented FH, in which you have no increased rate of death, all-cause mortality at any rate, at any age. And in fact... This is untreated, so this is not looking at statins having an effect. For people 70 years of age with FH, they have a significantly lower rate of death for the next decade compared to the general population. Yeah, and that's when LDL is clearly not relevant. Now, we published a paper. My colleagues and I published a paper on medical hypotheses in which we reviewed the FH literature, and this is so important, and it's ignored by the statin advocates. You have so many papers that have shown that what kills people with FH is coagulation factors. Mm. These people naturally, comes along with high LDL, they also have a genetic anomaly in which they have significantly higher coagulation factors, higher fibrinogen, higher factor eight, and their platelets are much more reactive to epinephrine. So you put some epinephrine in a dish with platelets, platelets coagulate, okay, they aggregate. Yeah. Um, someone with FH, but their platelets in a dish put in some epinephrine, they're 100 times more sensitive to epinephrine. 
than a controlled population. Now, you don't hear much about that because no one's excited about reducing platelet aggregation. I mean, who wants to just give aspirin to somebody that's got an FH, right? Mm -hmm. There's no money in reducing platelet aggregation. Far more money in targeting LDL. Yes, what's interesting about that is people have have problems mechanistically understanding that because there can be, you know, 20 or more different genetic variations, uh, genetic mutations in the LDL receptor to cause FH. So how can they all individually also affect coagulation? It seems... Uh, like a disconnect, the LDL receptor genes right. also affecting coagulation genes. Right. It's, so people have a real hard time mechanistically understanding that. Are you able yeah. to explain no, that? I, I think that it's a different gene. Yeah. So there's actually an, a very nice study showing um, different gene forms uh, for prothrombin, which is involved in coagulation. And it's the subset of individuals that have FH and equally high LDL between those who have cardiovascular disease and those who don't, but a subset of those also have the gene anomaly, which dramatically increases prothrombin, and those are the people who have cardiovascular disease. Yeah. So it looks like it is potentially linked to the LDL gene anomaly, but it is a separate gene. Mm. And so only a subset of people with FH now have this reactive uh, response, and those are the ones. Yeah. The other thing to keep in mind, people with FH, just like everybody else, they're susceptible to the same risk factors. So the people with FH that smoke have a dramatically higher rate of heart disease, much more than the general population. And you talk about stress-producing heart disease, well, the FH person is going to be more sensitive to stress. And diabetes, so higher blood sugar, uh, is going to trigger platelet aggregation. So the FH person will be more sensitive. But to the individuals that don't have these risk factors and yet have sky-high LDL, no heart disease. Yeah, I think that's one of the most important points to make is that the the augmented effects. We know smoking's bad. We know diabetes, hypertension, metabolic syndrome are are dangerous for your cardiovascular health. But for those with FH, it is a magnitude of uh, order higher risk than right. for the average person. And I think it's important for the person with FH to realize that this is across the entire population that it appears that they all have this increased susceptibility to platelet aggregation. Um, but it's the subset then that have the additional risk factors, right. such as the high blood sugar. But you know what? What is disturbing to me is that I read the reviews on FH. I read about treatment for FH, um, and we're talking about 20, 30 authors writing a massive review on FH. The word platelet does not come up once. Mm. Coagulation does not come up once. It total focuses on LDL. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, do they just not? They just disregard that it's even an issue because the the papers are there, the science is there. You can you might right. say I don't believe it's as big of an issue as some are making it out to be, but you can't ignore that the science is there and have to address it. That's that what they do. Yeah, and and it's not just one or two papers published here and there where you know people can't find it. We're talking about fifty years of research. Yeah, looking at people with FH, and there's some anomalies that are kind of interesting. Uh, the people who get their FH, it's heterozygous, so it's either from one parent or the other. Um, it just turns out there's a maternal influence. People who get their, their uh, FH from their mother are much more likely to develop heart disease than people who get it from their father. Really? Yeah, I haven't I mean, seen you, that. Well, it, it's out there. It's confirmed. LDL levels appear to be equivalent. Interesting. Um, yeah, it is really interesting. And it says that maybe, I've, I mean, I've hypothesized that maybe the coagulation factors come along with getting maternal FH and not with paternal FH. Mm. They may be more reactive. But nobody's talking about this. Yeah, there's no money in studying it. Right. And there's no, there's no real benefit in studying it because... We have the boogeyman. We have the treatment. So why complicate the why complicate the issue? Right? Well, that's also the other thing. Uh, there has never been a study on FH going back fifty years. Never been a study in FH with a placebo-controlled trial. Right. And there's a lot of modeling that you'll see, mm-hmm. but no one has ever. From the beginning, they felt it was unethical. Right. We've got people with FH. We've got to give them a treatment, two different treatments, because we've got to be able to save them. And it turns out, uh, I mean, the way to look at it is there's no evidence that statins have any benefit or any other treatment has a benefit in FH because it's never been compared to placebo. Right, but historical data shows in the statin era, risk of cardiovascular disease has decreased tenfold is what you would read in most papers since statins had been, statin treatment has been instituted. Now, as we know from epidemiological studies, there are lots of other things that can happen and coincide with that. But uh, the relative risk drop since statins have been introduced is impressive. 
I mean, in, when looking in data from that standpoint. But um, my guess is you have a different well, interpretation of that. Well, no, it's just a matter of looking at the when is it that death from coronary heart disease has declined. It actually began in the 1960s. So death peaked in the 1950s, and you can actually see that decline began in the 60s, and really the slope of that decline hasn't changed much with statins. And the statin research has really shown very little effect on overall mortality. So there's no reason to believe that uh, the statins have any effect on population mortality from cardiovascular disease. So clearly, in fact, I remember there are papers you'll read in the 1970s questioning why is it so much fewer people are dying of heart disease now than they did 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so that it may very well be that it is um, better care, uh, and it's actually post-coronary care that may very well be reducing. It's death from heart disease that has declined over the last 40 years or so. Uh, but probably the incidence of heart disease may even be increasing along with obesity and diabetes. Uh, but actually what it should be potentially the use of antibiotics. It's essentially very important because mm. you do see a linkage of infectious disease yeah. with heart disease. Yeah, we hear about smoking. We hear about blood pressure oh, management. Yeah, I, you know, that's so all important. Those, right. The re decline in death from heart disease has come right along with decline in smoking, yeah. too, which, again, peaked in the 1950s and 60s. Could it also be treating tooth abscesses or treating, oh, you know, yeah. chronic smoldering infections? We d the point is we don't know the answer. We can come up with lots of hypotheses. But statins don't deserve the credit for reducing it because it preceded statin development by decades. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so... We kind of went down a little rabbit hole, which I think I'm going to do a lot with you here because okay, <laughs> sure. there's so much to talk about. But the, I was starting from the point of um, asking the question, is LDL causative of cardiovascular disease? And sometimes I do get in trouble of making statements and make it sound like I support them when I'm right. really sort of quoting the literature and trying to play devil's advocate. But I think I think there's a, a so much controversy about being involved and being causative. And we, we blur the lines far too often. So, I mean, would you agree that ApoB-containing lipoproteins, like LDL lipoprotein, are involved in the atherogenic process and involved in developing cardiovascular disease? It's certainly possible, and I'm open to any possibility. Um, I'd like to learn more about it. But what just doesn't make sense to me is when you look at people that have astronomically high LDL and they don't have heart disease. If we're talking about it being causative, I mean, why? I mean, why right. is it is not causing it all by itself? Well, they'll talk about the environment, the metabolic environment. Well, what you've got is a, is a harmful metabolic environment. You've got people that have high blood sugar and high blood pressure, which is causing damage to the endothelial. It's causing damage to the vasovasorum. Um, and potentially one could say, is, and you've got infection, that the LDL is found at the scene of the crime. Yeah. And again, it gets to association versus causation. I mean, the police are always found at the scene of the crime, and so one can make an argument the police have caused the crime. It's the right. same kind of argument. Uh, there's good evidence that LDL works with um, white blood cells, with macrophages, to target pathogens, to target and be able to kill viruses and bacteria. And that is why, in fact, you find LDL in damaged artery. It is, and you also find white blood cells. No one is, is saying that, well, white blood cells obviously must be atherogenic. Right. You find calcium in the artery. Well, calcium must be causing heart disease. Um, you know, you find lots of stuff. You find bacteria in these arteries. Well, bacteria are causing... LDL is found along with a lot of other things inside the arteries. And essentially, there's, there's so much work showing that LDL is a part of the immune system. And when you find actually bacterial remnants, this is very common in the plaque, you find bacterial remnants, uh, infection is often associated with heart disease. And so LDL is found where you have infection. Right. And so that helps to understand LDL's role, which is a part of our immune system. So I would say at this point, there is no evidence of causation. And in fact, we also, to take it to another level, there are different kinds of LDL. And this is so important to the low-carb community right. because what we have to, to see, this is so obvious, is that the LDL changes depending on the environment. And so what you find is, and this is so much work by um, uh, Ron Krauss and, and others, is that the LDL changes under a condition of low blood sugar. So you don't have that abnormal LDL. I mean, natural native LDL is large, as I say, large and fluffy. Um, and when it's surrounded by sugar, it's glycated and oxidized, well, you end up with what's called small dense LDL. It has much less cholesterol in it, um, and it's much more reactive. Well, the way to think about this is that is not the way LDL is supposed to be. Right. That small dense LDL is associated with an endothelium, that's the lining of the artery wall, that's damaged. 
And so what you've got in conjunction with too much blood sugar, too much blood pressure, and then you've got damage to the wall, the LDL itself is damaged. So I would actually say at this point, I think small dense LDL is potentially, think of it as atherogenic, yep. but that's because it's contributing to the noise. It's contributing to the damage. Right. But the native LDL in a healthy person is not contributing to damage. So here we have a lifestyle intervention that can improve metabolic disease, improve insulin levels, glucose levels, can take small dense LDL, make it the larger, fluffier LDL, can lower triglycerides, raise HDL, lower blood pressure. It can do all these impressive things. Right. Yet the medical community is afraid that it can also raise LDL. Right. So would you say this is a completely different paradigm and environment than has been studied before and we're outside of any realm of evidence that medicine can point to? Right. And what I'll be talking about today is that uh, there's so little work relating ketogenic diet to so many factors that people assume have to do with heart disease as well as other diseases. I mean, we could talk about the microbiome. People are saying you've got to have fiber, you've got to have vegetables because these bacteria must feed on the fiber. Well, no one, as far as I know, has ever looked at ketogenic diet, mm -hmm. the microbiome. So we don't know what really a healthy microbiome looks like in someone that's ketogenic. The same way with LDL. There's been insufficient work looking at LDL in people who are ketogenic. There's no work I know of looking at statin effects in people that actually go low carb. And my guess is who wants to fund that kind of study, right? Because the low carb will probably blow away stats right. as far as benefits. So the person that's going low carb in a sense, and I say this, that you don't know what the outcome will be because there's never been a study on low carb or ketogenic diet and coronary outcome. Actually, sometimes people, some really atrocious work saying that low carb actually increases mortality. People die from low carb. Truly awful epidemiological work. But the answer is we don't know that ketogenic diet will reduce coronary events because no one's ever shown that. Right. It's reasonable to assume that because the biomarkers all move in the right direction, that you'll probably be protected from coronary events. And the LDL will turn out to be completely irrelevant. So the argument, of course, saying um, the LDL still matters. Like, uh, Let me rephrase that. I guess there are two arguments. One is the one you just you just made. We don't know, and there's reason to believe it's going to be protective. The other is we don't know, so we really shouldn't treat this as a special circumstance until we do know, and we should lump it all together. And then when you, if you go that route, and you know that's sort of the mainstream medical community um, would go that route, they they really point to three versions of evidence to support that any LDL is going to, any elevated LDL is going to increase your risk. There's the, the Mendelian randomization, the genetic trials, which we sort of talked about with FH, but there's also the, the PCSK9 gain of function, which, so PCSK9 um, basically is involved in the, the uh, degradation of the LDL receptors. Right. So um, if you have a higher functioning PCSK9, you're going to actually have more LDL receptors. You're going to clear the LDL faster. So there's a population that had a, a lower risk of cardiovascular disease with that gain of function, um, and thus the development of the PCSK9 inhibitor drugs. Um, so just a study like that showing um, benefit from lower LDL with higher receptor um, action. I mean, is that enough to say, okay, there, there is more evidence there to say that an LDL, a lower LDL is beneficial for some people, so therefore we should err on that side? Yeah, the original PCSK9 work was based on people who had uh, abnormal PCSK9, and so they had significantly higher um, LDL receptor density, therefore lower levels of LDL uh, and, and somewhat lower levels of coronary events. Uh, but that was really related to a relatively small number of people showing no overall mortality difference between those with the PCSK9 abnormalities and the controls. Now, the recent work, and again, the target is LDL because that's where all the money is. Right. The recent work has targeted the PCSK9 inhibiting drugs. The thing that's so important to realize is when someone takes this drug, what they're doing is increasing their LDL receptor density. Okay, which is abnormal. They're beautiful negative feedback systems to maintain LDL receptor just at the right level. This drug blocks the negative feedback, so you're increasing LDL receptors, meaning where is that LDL going to go? It's going to bind to these receptors and go into the cell. So the cell is going to become chock full of LDL that really shouldn't be there. The cardiologists love this because now the LDL is taken out of the blood. So you drop LDL levels by 70%. 
But that LDL doesn't disappear. That LDL is being crammed into liver cells. And ultimately, my prediction, they've only looked like two years now. And there's no real difference in cardiac events when you look at the, the PCSK9 trials. My prediction is you're going to see a really screwed up liver. Hmm. You're going to see liver damage occurring in these cells that have too much cholesterol inside them. And so five, ten years down the line, you're going to be looking at people that are going to be harmed by this drug. Yeah, that's a great hypothesis. I, I, and we need longer-term studies, obviously, because right so far they've been two years. In defense of the PCSK9 inhibitors, they take you know the highest-risk patients already on a statin. Right. They give them the PCSK9 inhibitors. They drop their LDL down further. Two big studies. One showed about a 1% reduction in cardiovascular events with no mortality difference. One showed a 1.5% reduction with a small mortality benefit right. at two years. So the proponents say, look, if we had this effect at two years, think of the effect we're going to have at 10 years. Of course. And of course, your response is, right. what, are, what are the side effects and the risks going to be at 10 years? And we don't know the answer to that question. We don't know that answer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, so there's the Mendelian studies, the genetic um, predispositions. Then there's the epidemiological studies, which we sort of touched on, but studies like Mr. Fit, like Framingham, which showed this association between total cholesterol and LDL and cardiovascular risk, although a small association, but an association. Um, now, what can about I inter- age? Can oh, I interrupt okay. you? I'm, yes. I'm, I'm going to be talking about Mr. Fit today. Yeah. This is an amazing study. Because Mr. Fit showed a 400% increase in coronary mortality based on cholesterol levels, going from the lowest to highest. And it's actually right now at the University of Minnesota website, you can see Mr. Fit. Uh, And this is looking at about 400,000 men, uh, middle-aged men, and they got their cholesterol levels and followed them for quite a few years, seven years. Uh, The mortality rate from the lowest to the highest men was 1%. The actual mortality rate was 1%. Yeah. And they have distorted this to turn it into a 400% it's mortality impressive. rate. So you mentioned Mr. Fit. Um, that was an abomination of science. <laughs> uh, Framingham, I think it's all very clear. When you look at unhealthy people, you look at LDL in an unhealthy environment, uh, potentially it's either it's either trying to save the unhealthy environment or it's a part of it. But again, it, it, it means the patient needs to sort of take his life into his own hands or her own hands. They need to take control of their environment. They're not going to find health in a pill, has been my point. Yeah. And so the person that has diabetes and is obese thinks that they're going to be protected by taking a statin. Well, the answer is still they're going to be very unhealthy. Yeah. And that's that's one of the traps we fall into as a medical community, just trying to make things so simple on the patient, right. make it easy for them. But that easy doesn't always work. Right. And so for the person that's going low carb, improving all the biomarkers, and yet they're still concerned about the LDL. So when we look again, getting back to 4S, which I think is so incredibly important, uh, the 4S trial, again, run by the drug companies. And so even though I'm skeptical, I'm looking at the data and going, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. The people that have the kind of biomarkers you see with someone on a low-carb diet showed no benefit whatsoever with statin treatment. That tells you a little something about what to predict when we have someone that is low-carb and therefore they don't need the statin because there is no benefit. Right, not proving that the low-carb is... That the low carb elim- eliminates the benefit because that wasn't tested, but you can draw the hypothesis with right. that evidence. If and you there's want. every reason yeah. to believe the adverse effects don't discriminate. There's no reason why the, there shouldn't be adverse effects in someone on low carb. And so adverse effects are simply the the statin affects physiology. Uh, so potentially they're looking at the cognitive effects and the muscle damage yeah. and, and liver and, and kidney effects as well. So what's interesting though there when you specifically the cognitive cognitive effects and the risk of diabetes, I mean, that's what low carb is purported to be able to benefit. So I would like to think that that would be a safety mechanism um, to hopefully reduce those side effects. Again, no data behind it, um, but it certainly makes empiric sense. So if I have someone on a statin, I actually want them on a low carb diet, one for the metabolic benefits and to help with the LDL beyond what a statin could do, but also to help reduce potential side effects. Now, you've pointed out to me that there was a paper actually showing some beta cell dysfunction in the pancreas, so maybe low carb isn't going to be enough to help reduce the risk of diabetes. No, not at all. When you think cognitive effects, um, the brain makes its own cholesterol. 
and it needs the cholesterol to make new brain cells to make memories. Well, we actually we published a paper showing that the satins that actually are, are uh, lipophilic, which means they can get into the brain, are the ones associated with adverse cognitive effects. Mm -hmm. And so that statin is going on the brain, independent of whatever that person's diet is, it's interfering with brain cholesterol synthesis, which is essential for making memories. And so, no, I don't think it has anything to do with the person's diet. This is now just simple physiology. Right. You interfere with cholesterol production in the brain, you're going to inter interfere with brain functioning. Yeah. And the critics say it's difficult to measure that because if statins are being used in the elderly population, elderly people are going to get reduced memory function anyway. How do we quantify it without a trial? Same thing. But it comes down to what are you most worried about? Are you more worried about developing Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline or a heart attack? Yeah. And as we age, that may change. And age is a fascinating uh, subject when it comes to cholesterol and LDL in general because right. whether it's Framingham study, whether it's the Honolulu heart study, or there are a number of different studies, taking it together, it suggests there's, again, a bimodal response. Maybe in the 50s and younger, there's a tighter association between LDL and cardiovascular risk. But in the 70s and over, that association seems to flip. And you've been very big about pointing out that out. So tell us about yeah. that difference. So what, what I would still go with is risk factors. Yeah. What you've got are there are risk factors that kill people relatively young, smokers and diabetes. Um, these risk factors potentially inter interact with oxidized and small dense LDL at a younger age. You make it into your 70s and 80s, then basically you probably don't have those risk factors, much less likely to have the risk factors. Um, and so you don't see obese people typically living into their 80s and 90s. Uh, and in fact, what you do find is the people with the highest LDL, and this is over 50 years of longitudinal studies, people with the highest LDL actually live longer than people with low LDL. So again, it's completely inconsistent with the idea that LDL causes harm on its own. And we published this paper in BMJ Open um, a few years ago. We reviewed every paper that had looked at mortality uh, in relation to LDL levels. There wasn't a single paper that showed increased mortality in relation to the general population in older people, that's over 60, with the highest LDL compared to lower LDL. So that's completely inconsistent with the hypothesis that LDL itself is causal to heart disease. Because it's not killing older people who are at the highest risk of death from stroke and heart and uh, coronary heart disease. Yeah, and the 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 comeback there as well as people get sicker, their LDL declines. So as they're on their deathbed, their LDL is going to lower. Um, That's the sort of the reverse causality argument, which really completely fails because it's not looking one year after someone's had a blood test, which actually does happen. Someone dies often. You do find the the year before death, especially if it's a cancer death, LDL levels do decline. But these are 10, 20, 30, even 40-year longitudinal studies. You got a blood sample from someone uh, in the 50s or 60s, and then 20 years later, you look at the who's died. And so it's you're looking years beyond. And these are people who have good health to begin with. And you eliminate any people that had died in the first couple of years. You're still looking 20 years later. Those who had the high LDL in their 50s and 60s are still living in the 80s yeah. and 90s. So again, observational data doesn't prove that the high LDL is what is improving their health, but certainly flies in the face of high LDL is dangerous and going to kill you. These are completely inconsistent with the idea that LDL is causal. Yeah. I mean, it would be so simple if essentially, you know, it's, it relates to me also to the vegan versus the, um, the, the carnivore diet. Vegans love to say how bad red meat is for you. Well, if only the people with eating red meat would just die in their 40s of heart attack, it would be so simple. Right. Well, if, if the people who demonize LDL and say, well, it causes heart disease and people die, well, if people with high LDL would just die, you know, in their 30s and 40s, it would be so simple. Right. But they don't. Uh, the people with high LDL are living into their 80s and 90s and even 100. We're going to hear that today, that uh, the people 100-year-old have the highest LDL of those measured. It just, it just simply makes sense. It doesn't make sense to think of this as causing heart disease. There is an environment, a toxic environment you will find LDL, especially in the younger people. The toxic environment has to do with smoking and high blood pressure. And so again, if we think about LDL coming to the rescue now, the reason why we want to think about LDL being beneficial is that people with FH have a lower rate of death. Again, got to emphasize, it's not statins. People in their 70s have a 40% reduced rate of death because they have a normal rate of death from coronary heart disease, but lower rate of death from non-coronary heart disease in their 70s. Less death from infectious disease, less death from cancer. 
this is the way to look at it, that if you make it to your 70s with high LDL, you've got a more protective immune system and no difference in cardiovascular death. Yeah, it's interesting to see it and certainly not talked about um, from that standpoint. There's no money in talking about LDL as protective. Right, right, right. And, and then there's a concern about um, time of exposure. Uh, that has something to do with it, whether you have LDL in your 40s or LDL in your 70s, that it's a, a different, um, a whole different environment, different time of exposure. But more than time of exposure is likely what else is going on from well, other risk factors in metabolic health. The person that has FH and is in the 70s yeah, has had 70 years <laughs> right. of exposure. And so, again, they call that lifetime LDL burden. Right. And if you actually look at their work, the one you cited earlier, they're saying that FH untreated, you can expect people to be dying in their 30s and 40s. And, and again, that just simply doesn't happen. Right, right. Uh, where else to go? There's so much to talk about here, <laughs> so much more. Um, you have been criticized, um, and, and anytime you go, anybody goes against the mainstream medicine, of course uh, right. they're going to be criticized. But one of the criticisms has been that you're cherry-picking your studies and cherry-picking the data. Um, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think you're talking as a category. The people who criticize statins are called statin deniers, right. um, are cherry-picking the data. And actually, the criticism goes beyond that. They just simply say, this is an internet cult. Steve Nissen says, these people aren't real scientists. Uh, I'm, I have no bias whatsoever. A and again, I'm just a scientist. I, my first priority was to improve my own health. I have no reason to be biased um, to pick the studies that would basically make a point for me if I want to be showing, if I want to be showing that LDL is not harmful. Um, and I pick those studies, but ultimately I don't care about my own high LDL. I mean, it harms my own health. So I have no bias. I have no interest in this other than looking at good science. I want to look at all the science and come to valid conclusions as a scientist. Because I get no money from this, I have no pay, I have no funding for my interest in cardiovascular work, it's purely a personal venture for me, I don't want to be biased. I don't want to cherry pick the data. I'm looking at the entirety of the literature and I'm coming to conclusions. Yeah. And so it leaves us as doctors and clinicians facing someone who's improved their health, improved their blood pressure, improved their metabolic parameters, but have a high LDL being being confused what to do. The average doctor out there who doesn't see this every day is going to have the knee-jerk reaction that this is dangerous. Some are saying you can ignore the LDL completely and don't worry about it, and some are saying we have to you know, really put it in, into context. Um, but it's because of work like you, because of Zoe Hartcomb and Asima Holcher and Malcolm Kendrick, people who are willing to go against the juggernaut of the medical community and big pharma to say, wait, we need to look at this differently, that allows clinicians the ability to say, okay, wait, this is something different. There is something to this. So uh, you've, you've put yourself out there to really yeah. help move this forward. And um, you've gotten a lot of attacks for it. I mean, has your skin really thickened <laughs> from this? And uh, Actually... I'm not sure what attacks you're talking about. Um, I actually, I, I think in general, the statin advocates have ignored, to a great extent, the people who have been critics. I know it came out there as an article in the uh, UK paper recently, specifically criticizing Zoe Hartcomb, right. uh, Malcolm Kendrick, Ufi Ravenskov. They left me out, I guess, because I'm not a UK person. Um, but um, th those, that article was, was truly awful. Um, I mean, attacking them and saying, you know, how wrong they are. Yeah. But really, I, and I don't even think we're not coming out against pharma, speaking for them as well. Uh, there is no bias whatsoever. I am not looking to praise LDL. Uh, and, and I would grant that the small, dense LDL, which is an abnormal um, LDL, may be uh, contributing to the disease along with. It's almost like LDL, small, dense LDL may very well be the gas on the fire, mm -hmm. but it didn't make the fire. Um, so I don't take it personally. Um, and, uh, oh, I actually, I do recall that there was a cardiologist actually at Duke university, um, who wrote an op-ed specifically about me, um, saying that I was causing harm to her patients, that people would die because I was explaining how statins have adverse effects and overall the adverse effects are greater than the benefits, uh, to which I wrote a rebuttal to that cardiologist's reply. So yes, there was one example I can think of which I personally have been attacked. Yeah. Um, 
But then again, you know, to me, it's all just science. It's not something I take personally. I think that's a good perspective. It's all science. And, and actually, just to talk quickly about that article in the Daily Mail where they, where they compared um, LDL deniers, cholesterol deniers, right. to the anti-vaccine movement, which right. I think is fascinating because they, they drew the comparison to the doctor who was falsifying data about the vaccines. And, right. and I thought that was awful. I mean, that was yeah. clearly overstepping the bounds because you're not falsifying any data. Right. You're helping us see data that already exists that other people did that's either being ignored or being promoted in a, in a different way. You're just helping us re-see that data. There's no falsification there. Well, there's a strategy in combat, which is to dehumanize, dehumanize your enemy. Yeah. So what people will do is say, well, they're not real scientists. So you can call them an internet cult. You can say that they're just like the anti-vaccine vaccine people. And that way, you, in a sense, you, you dehumanize them, you, you denigrate them, and therefore they'll have less credibility. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just wrong. Right. What we have to do is really talk about science, and I'm open to any aspect of the science. From the very beginning, I just wanted to learn how is it I can make myself healthier. Um, and what I realized is I did ignore the LDL, and I ignore my LDL now, which is quite high. Uh, and what I really care about and what I know what matters is blood sugar, triglycerides. HDL is important, but it is the canary in the coal mine. You don't want to take a drug that will raise your HDL. Right. HDL tells you about your lifestyle. Triglycerides tell you about your lifestyle uh, and tell you you're consuming too many carbohydrates. LDL doesn't tell you much of anything. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, a great way to sort of summarize this is are we talking about causation or are we talking about markers of our underlying health and our right. underlying lifestyle? And that's what improves. I mean, so much of that improves with a low-carb lifestyle. Those right. markers improve, which then should give us the evidence that improves our health down the road. And I hope we get that long-term evidence. In the absence of it, though, there's certainly plenty of reason to believe it's going to be so. That's a, that's a great summary. All right. Very good. Well, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. And where can people hear more about you and more about your, your thoughts and your research? Uh, well, you know, I, I don't sell books. I don't have a book. I don't have a blog. I don't have a website. This for me is still, it's, it's personal. I have my day job in which I still do my neuroscience research. Um, I will be, um, uh, I actually don't have any talks planned in the future. Okay. Um, I'm, for me, it's more important to be able to write medical publica publications. So I'm in the process of writing more papers to be published in medical journals. So I'm really approaching this as a scientist. I don't promote myself as anything. I'm not making any money from this. Um, so I welcome the opportunity to talk with you. I thank you so much for inviting me. Um, but frankly, I have nothing to, to share as far as promoting myself. Well, that's a breath of fresh air. Yeah. We don't hear that very often. Well, thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. You're very welcome.